everyone. I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction. Today I'm speaking with Courtney J. Hall, the author of Sunrise by Sin. Like Sarah Kennedy, whose September 2015 interview you can find at the New Books in Historical Fiction site, http colon slash slash newbooksinhistoricalfiction.com, Courtney J. Hall approaches Tudor England by one of the less traveled paths. She avoids the twin stars of Henry VIII and Elizabeth I to focus on the last years of Mary Tudor, known to history as Bloody Mary. This book has a special meaning for me because Courtney J. Hall is a member of both my writers' group and the small press with which we publish. I have watched her novel grow from a very early stage, so it's more than usually gratifying to have a chance to talk with her about her work. Chapter 1, May 1558 The dark stone walls of Riverview House, Sir Cade Batchley's family residence on the Strand, rose in front of his eyes. He lifted his face to the cool sting of rain that sputtered from the iron-gray sky. The months spent in prison at Castel Sant'Angelo seemed as if they'd happened to someone else a long time ago. He was home at last. Three years and three months had passed since he set off for Rome at Her Majesty's command. The time had gone quickly now and then. At other times it dragged to the point where Cade was afraid to look at himself in the glass for fear he would see a white-haired old man looking back at him. But after five days of bouncing from Bautistrone and back again, thanks to a thunderstorm-ravaged journey across the channel from La Havre de Grasse, and another three atop the borrowed horse that took him from Brighton to London, Cade found the vile stench of the refuge-strewn streets as welcome to his nose as a bouquet of fresh-picked Michaelmas daisies to that of a farmer's daughter courted for the first time. And now, please join me in welcoming Courtney J. Hall. Hi, Courtney. I'm especially looking forward to our talk today. Thank you for agreeing to let me pelt you with questions. Thank you for having me. Although I met you when our writers' group formed in the summer of 2008, there's still much I don't know about you. Tell us about your life before that. What made you start writing fiction, and how did you go about it? I've actually been writing since I was a little, teeny, tiny little kid. And pretty much as soon as I learned how to read, I learned how to write. or started to write. I don't know that I necessarily learned how to do it. Um, my very first written piece was a poem. I wrote it in kindergarten. It was an ode to autumn. Um, I, I remember it. I don't think I'll ever repeat it. But they had me read it over the intercom system at my elementary school. And then the principal said I must have copied it. So after that, I just I started writing little stories, like little short stories, fairy tales, things like that, um, and poetry. I actually thought I would someday be a poet, but I Pretty much just one day just woke up, didn't feel like doing it anymore. Didn't have the inspiration or anything like that. So I haven't actually written a poem since I was about 23 years old. About more years than I'm going to say in an interview. But um, I started writing fiction seriously about 10 years ago. Um, I had started dozens of novels, never finished any of them. I had no idea what I was doing until I started my current book. My first book, Sunrise by Sin, was lucky enough to find the greatest critique group in the world and actually managed to finish it. So tell us, um, were you always interested in historical fiction? No. Um, that happened. I always liked history. My parents are very into history. They passed that along to me. We all like different time periods. My my father's very big into the Kennedy assassination. My mom's a Civil War buff. Somehow, I found a historical romance on her shelf. The 
bodice ripper kind, and I was way too young to have been reading it, but I took it anyway, and I read it. It was set in Elizabethan England, and I just never looked back. So what drew you to Mary Tudor rather than her more famous relatives? Um, I actually never intended to write about Mary Tudor. It was the characters that came to me. They came sort of half-formed. Um, I knew they were Catholic. That was one of the few things I knew about them. And I started to think about what that would mean in the 16th century. The first half of the 16th century, pretty much everyone was Catholic. It started to change in the 1530s and 40s. And by the time Elizabeth came to the throne, there was real, like nobody knew what was going to happen. They didn't know if, you know, she would burn all the Catholics like her sister had burned all the Protestants. So I thought it would be a really interesting thing to do is just to drop these characters into the very last days of Mary Tudor's reign and see what happened as they tried to figure out what was going to happen in their life. So the main character of Some Bodies by Sin we met in the introduction. His name is Cade Batchley. Um, he's just returned to England, as the passage I read shows. So tell us about him as a person, who he has been before we meet him. Well, he is very much a ladies' man. That's one, the first thing we learn about him, one of the first things. He's a second son of an earl, so he pretty much doesn't have any big responsibilities. Yet at the same time, he has managed to kind of forge his own path. He left home, he went to London, he got in with the queen and got her to trust him in such a way that she sent him with an envoy to Rome in 1555. And even after the envoy came home, the England and the Pope at the time didn't really have the best relationship. So she had him kind of stay on as a spy. He was posing as a secretary to a cardinal named Cardinal Moroni, who was eventually accused of heresy and put in prison. So as his secretary, Cade went with him. He got thrown in prison too, stayed there for probably a long time to him. Felt like a really long time. Um, but he was eventually released. They had nothing on him, obviously. So on his way home, he was stopped in France and told he was to serve as the representative of the English court at the wedding of Mary, Queen of Scots. And then after that, he finally managed to come home, where he pretty much imagined he would pick up his life as he had left it. So this is actually quite a common thing for second sons. And some people think yes. that this is one of the successes of the English system was because everything went to the eldest son. You had all of these well-educated and um, of necessity enterprising young men who were forced to find their own way in the world. Yep. Some went to the church, some went to the army. And Cade has a small inheritance from his yes, mother. Yes, he does. So the first thing that happens to him when he reaches London is he discovers that his older brother Stephen has died. So explain to us what that means to him, not just in practical terms, which we'd like to learn first, but also in emotional terms. Well, in practical terms, it means that he is now the heir to an earldom that he's never ever had any interest in, has never wanted. Um, and there's really not a thing he can do about it, so he just has to accept it. Um, which does not come easy. But emotionally, he's he's sort of torn because he never had a relationship with his brother. And the little bit of dealings they did have with each other were not good. His brother was abusive to him, um, several years older, obviously. So he didn't just treat him like the little brother. He kicked him around a good bit. 
So in a way, he's sort of relieved to be out from under that. But then when he considers what it actually means that his brother's gone, it's really just turns his entire life on its head. And his brother has died in uh, an epidemic, not, not yes. the plague, but another epidemic. And so that affects Kate and those around him in other ways as well. It's not only his brother who is affected. Right. His cousin is affected. His cousin is actually his best friend. And his cousin has lost his wife in the epidemic. And not only that, but his father was, he, he survived, but he got sick and it, it, you know, was not good for his health in the long term. So Cade goes to Easton to see his father. Yes. And, uh... Tell us what he finds when he gets there. Because we're still early in the book, right. so we're not giving away any spoilers yet. He actually he finds a lot of things, and a lot of really horrible, terrible things. But the biggest thing is that his father had tuberculosis, thought he was getting better, which of course he wasn't, because you don't get better from tuberculosis and in those days when there's no treatment. Um, but that the... The sickness his dad suffered in the epidemic has weakened him to the point where he's literally days away from dying. So not only does Kate have to come to terms with being the heir, he also has to come to terms with the fact that he has no time to get used to it and will probably be the Earl by the time the week is out. So before we get back to that, um, tell us a little bit about what his father has done to cope with the tuberculosis, because this is a question of uh, medicine and how medicine was understood in the 16th century. He went on pilgrimage. And where did he go? <laughs> he went to uh, Santiago de Compostela in Spain. Which uh, is, I have to admit, my knowledge of what the pilgrimage is like comes from a nonfiction book by Shirley MacLaine, where she went on... <laughs> Pilgrimage to Santiago de Compostela. I mean, it was, I know about the cathedral, um, which is in Galicia, Spain, and is very famous. But the pilgrimage itself is also for a man who is already sick and extremely Arches. trying um, experience, mm -hmm. one would think. It was, uh, but he actually, he thought he was getting better. He went and he did, you know, what he was supposed to do to get his health back on track. And they thought it worked and he came back and was actually all right until this epidemic came. And the epidemic, it actually did happen. I, it wasn't fictional. There was a sickness that went over the country in 1558. And it, it wasn't the flu exactly, but they said from records it was somewhat like it. Like it wasn't the plague, it wasn't the sweat, nothing like that. Some, some strain of influenza that went through and mm -hmm. wiped a good segment of the country out. Which has been known to happen yes. with influenza. yes. So, um, tell us a bit about the Earl of Easton again as a personality and his relationship with Kate. He's horrible. He's an absolutely horrible person, and you can't even say, oh, you know, the riches and the power, you know, being a noble corrupted him. He's just a horrible guy down to the bone. Um, and he, he abused both of his wives. He was married twice, abused both, um, both are dead, obviously. At the beginning of the story, you find that out pretty quickly. Um, and he also, he is the one who told, who taught his younger son, or his older son, to abuse Kate. So the two of them together ganged up on him. And there's reasons for that. Which, you know, well, we won't get into, we won't get into that, but right. there are reasons. It's not just, you know, gratuitous abuse. Um, 
and even at the the beginning of the story when Cade is his only hope, he's his, the only son he has left, the only member of his blood, he still treats him like the worst thing that's ever happened to him. And he kind of, I don't know whether he really idolizes the older brother or whether he just does it to make Cade feel bad, but there is that element mm-hmm. of it that Cade really feels, not only is his father, does not only does his father dislike him, but his father, Cade at least believes that his father... Um, Openly favored. Openly favored the the older son who is now gone. Well, he's not totally wrong about that. And the older son was, it soon becomes clear, an incompetent manager. Mm -hmm. So what does Kate find in terms of the estate? He goes out riding and what does he see? He sees that uh, his childhood home is literally crumbling. Stones are falling out of the walls. Uh, The fields are barren. Windows are broken. And... They actually, they they literally don't have a coin to their name to fix it all. So he's fortunate enough to have this income from the property his mother left him that kind of lets him nudge everything back into place and get it started back on the road to recovery. But it's it's going to be a lot of work, and he knows that just, just by looking at it. So I think we can still stay on the realm of the safe to say that the Earl doesn't last very long. No, he doesn't. And Longer than a week, but not not long. Not long. Not far into the book. Mm-hmm. And so Cade is now the, the new Earl of Easton. Mm-hmm. He has a large and largely decrepit property, which has been mismanaged for years. Um, he has no money, as you mentioned, except what comes in from his mother's estate. He is responsible for a large number of people who live on the land and are dependent on him for their income. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them are actually working in the house. Uh, some of them, those that haven't run off, those that haven't run of. off, right? So he's living in an era where nothing was done by machine. So the only way to make your household function was to have a large number of hands right. to to do things. And um, he is facing a kind of responsibility for which he's never been trained, and he doesn't really have adequate help in the form of a a good bailiff or anything like that. Mm -hmm. So what does he do? Well, first he tries to have a meeting with the six servants that are left. And he tries to, you know, let them know that it's not going to be the same as it was under his father. They're understandably a little wary of him. Um, So eventually he has to go to his, what we would call his next door neighbor. And asked to borrow a couple guys to come in and, you know, fix the walls and replace the windows and all of that. And they do, but it it comes with a price. And the price? The price is that he has to take this guy's daughter to London to help her find a husband. Okay. And the guy's daughter is the beautiful redhead on your cover. Yes. And uh, tell us about her. Uh, She is Lady Samara Houghton. She's 17 years old. Um... She's completely irresponsible. She spends her time talking to rose bushes and staring at the sky and drawing pictures and swimming, which, you know, a woman of her station, her time never should have been doing that, but she does it. Um, and she's a little spoiled. She doesn't realize it, but she is. She, she's got it pretty good. 
Well, to be fair, she's irresponsible by the standards it's, it's of a great fault. lady yeah. of the time. Yeah. She's not uh, She's not good at household management, right. let's put it that way. She's completely unmarriageable in the beginning. By the standards of the <laughs> yes. time. And she has two sisters. Yes. And uh, they are not as unmarriageable. No. no, her middle sister is the epitome of you know, the perfect shadowing. And she knows everything. She runs the household. She oversees the soap making and preserves and all that stuff. She, she knows instinctively what it is that the lady of the household is supposed to do. And where is Samara's mother? She's dead. She died when Samara was five, so 12 years before the beginning of the story. But Samara is also an artist. That's what yes. she's, uh, when she's looking at talking to rose bushes and looking at the sky, that's what she's doing. Yes. Yeah, she's not, you know, mentally she's all there. She just, she's an artist, so she's always looking for beauty in the world. And what does it mean for her to be an artist in this time? Um, well, at, at this time, you know, it's 1558, female artists are pretty much, they're not unheard of, but it's very unusual. There was one female artist at the English court who was pretty famous for her miniatures. Um, she did portraits of the royal family and other aristocrats, and she was a Flemish emigrant. Her name was Lavina Tierling, but she wasn't noble. She was just a regular old lady. And as a noble girl, the daughter of an earl, Samara would have been expected. I mean, they might have looked at her drawing as you know a charming little hobby, but as soon as she got married, she'd be expected to give it up, be a wife and a mother. So despite her unsuitability, there is a young man who is already uh, interested in her, or at least his father is interested in her. Um, can you tell us a little bit about him? Uh, yeah, he's uh, Peter Waltham. He's the son of a random Marquess that is friends with Samara's father. And his father proposes a marriage between the two of them. He's, he's not exactly your, your romance hero type. Um, really unattractive. He's kind of, you know, personally repulsive. He just doesn't really seem to have a redeeming quality. I'm sure he has one in there somewhere, because we all do. But it's not, on, based on short acquaintance, it's, it's not blatantly evident what his might be. But he does play an important role in the story he because does. to the credit of Samara's father, he has doubts about the suitability of this yes. marriage, uh, despite the social benefits of it. So, in effect, this young man is the reason that, that her father decides that she should go to London to have a wider choice of husband. Right. And he's kind of a stick over her head mm -hmm. at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, he's definitely the, the axe waiting to fall. So she has three months to find a husband. Three months, yes. At, before... at the time she gets sent to London, it's the end of September, and her father gives her until Christmas. So she's well motivated to look. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so um, Kate does agree to escort Samara to London. Um, this is the heart of the story, so... We don't want to go too much farther, although I think we can go a little bit farther in um, in the context of other things. Uh, but first, I'd like to shift a bit to talk about the historical background. Um, 
what kinds of research you did for the story and what you know um, that went into the story, what you had to alter uh, or make up because it wasn't in the historical research or it was there, but it was inconvenient, um, that kind of thing. Tell us about Mary's Court at this period. Uh, well, Mary's Court right now is a really actually depressing place. Uh, she was on her deathbed. She was the only one who seemed not to know it. Um, there is very little, like you see in movies, where you know, there'll be great you know, periods of dancing after meals where all the courtiers come and dance with each other and hunting and parties and masks and all kinds of things. And none of that was going on at this time. There is a scene, one scene where there's dancing, which I, I added simply for you know, poetic license because I needed it to happen. But Mary really at this time pretty much never left her bed. So it wasn't really the most fun place to be and probably not the best place her father should have sent her. But he really, he didn't know what else to do. It was either that or see his daughter married off to this man. So talk a little bit about Mary herself. Um, the Mary that you hear about in the cliche history textbook is Bloody Mary, who burned the Catholics and married Philip of France and... Spain, excuse me, not France. Um, but your Mary is a more complex character. Tell us, give us, I, I think a lot of people probably don't know a great deal about Mary Tudor. She's just an, a footnote to the Catherine of Aragon and Boleyn story. Mm -hmm. So tell us about something about her past and, and where she, you know, this is the end of her life, but where was she earlier on? It's, it's actually kind of difficult to find out things about Mary um, that don't fit neatly into the Bloody Mary myth. Um, she was clearly not a well-loved monarch. She only ruled for five years, and in those five years, some horrible things happened. But when she was a little girl, she was, you know, pampered. She was this precious princess that her father loved. He betrothed her to the Holy Roman Emperor, and she was just the apple of his eye. She was his reason for living. And then once he got it into his head that he wanted to, out of his marriage. That's when it all fell apart for her. And that happened when she was barely 12 years old. So it was already, you know, that's a difficult age for a little girl. And then seeing all of this happen, how the country just fell apart because her father wanted out of his marriage, it really damaged her. And the worst part of it probably wasn't even that you know, she was made a bastard and her half-sister was, you know, was born and then took her place and was all of a sudden the pampered princess that everyone loved. But her mother was dying and she wasn't even allowed to see her mother. She was banished from it. So I think that really soured her on any kind of religious tolerance. And it made her really desperate for a family of her own. And which is really sad because she felt so hard in love with her husband. She loved him so much and she was a subject of mockery for it. They all made fun of her because he, he didn't make it much of a secret that he couldn't stand the sight of her. He left the country as soon as he could. He wasn't even in the country when she died. So it was just, she's a really tragic figure. And there was a rebellion at least once. Yes. Uh, can you tell us something about that? Cause it affects your character. It does. Uh, Wyatt's rebellion was, it was in 1554. It was inspired by Thomas Wyatt, 
the younger, um, who was a supporter of Elizabeth. He was a Protestant. He got a bunch of, got a bunch of other noblemen together and decided that they were going to throw Mary off the throne and put Elizabeth in her place. And it didn't work. That's not a spoiler. Everyone knows it, it didn't work. And, um, but it did make Elizabeth the subject of suspicion. She, it was never confirmed that she had anything to do with it. And of course she denied it. And still it really damaged the relationship between her and Mary and made Elizabeth a suspicious figure for until Mary died. And in this novel, she is a, that you can see that, that bad relationship between them. Mm-hmm. So Elizabeth is, uh, she's been raised Protestant, obviously, but she's not allowed to express herself as, or to openly admit that she is Protestant at this time. Um, and she's really the only heir, other than the Catholic Mary, Queen of Scots, mm-hmm. which would be problematic from a nationalistic point of view. And yet Mary won't name her as successor. Right. I'm not really sure of her reasoning there. I'm sure she she thought she had good reasons. Um, And, you know, in hindsight, what else could she have done? It it was just... She just held out until the very last moment. She could no longer deny that there was no other choice. Well, you mentioned that she didn't really want to admit that she was ill. That too. That would be part of it. She thought she was pregnant, which was just the symptoms of her illness coming out, the one that eventually killed her. And she thought that she wouldn't have to, I guess, when the baby was born. And Elizabeth is how old at this point? 25. So how does this affect your characters? They're, they're, they are all Catholic mm-hmm. because it was the only safe thing to be in Mary's reign, just as it was only safe to be Protestant in Henry's reign after he decided that that was what people had to be. Um, as you mentioned, it's it's a time of great religious uncertainty, and how are they, how does it affect them? They, honestly, they don't know from day to day what will happen to them. Um, they could wake up one day, Mary's dead, Elizabeth's queen, and she's decided, you know, hey, my sister burned all the Protestants, now I'm going to come along and burn all the Catholics. They, they don't know. Um, obviously, at that point, nobody knew that she would try to be tolerant, so... It's really, it's just, it's a life or death thing every day. But there is one character, uh, and he's probably the last one we're going to mention in any detail, except perhaps for Aunt Madge, if you'd like to tell us about her. Um, And that is Lord Linton, and he has a very different take and point of view. He is very excited for Mary to die. He's a Protestant. He and his father were involved in the rebellion, which actually gives him a bit of history with Kate. They literally faced off on the banks of the Thames as they, the Mary's army was pushing the rebels back. So they know each other. Uh, they don't like each other for reasons. Um, but yeah, he, his family has lost everything they have married. She was lenient. She should have executed them because what they did was treason. Um, they had some fortunate relatives, so she spared them, but she took everything they had. So at this point, they can barely keep afloat. They've decided that Robert is the only one capable of saving them if they send him to court to find the richest girl he can and convince her to marry him. 
And that richest girl happens to be. It just happens to be Samara. <laughs> so at this point, we will stop going into the plot because after you know that uh, there are Arcade and uh, who is doing his best not to be interested in Samara, <laughs> we should point out he's having a high old time at the court, um, being back where he feels that he belongs <laughs> to be. Um, and Lord Linton, and, uh, who is actually a closet Protestant, yeah. um, which should be clear. That now. should be clear as he is faking it. And um, so now we don't want to go further into this plot because that's the, how this all plays out is what we want people to go to read. But we didn't get back to the, the books that you actually read or the, the work that you actually did to prepare for the, the novel. What, you said there wasn't a lot of information about Mary. Not sympathetic. Most of it was cut from the very you know, Bloody Mary cloth. Mm-hmm. Um, there was one biography by Linda Porter, and that is where I got most of my information about Mary herself, not as the queen you know, who executed all the heretics, but as the queen, as a woman, and actually as a monarch, because she, she did more than just you know, burn people. She, she tried to bring Catholicism back, which after the Reformation, you know, there were a lot of people who were okay being Protestant, you know, were out. They didn't want the mass to come back. They didn't want to have to kneel or or transubstantiation and all that stuff. They just, they didn't, they weren't having it. They had been put up with it for so long and they were just, they were done. Um, but she she only reigned for five years, which I, th- I think she could have she could have done things if she hadn't been if her life hadn't been cut so short. One of the authors I interviewed earlier was um, uh, Ian Forrester, who Ian Mortimer yes. who runs I'm sorry Ian Mortimer <laughs> who writes under the name James Forrester. And he has written a couple of books. Was his book on Elizabethan England useful? Yes, and he it talks was. about a lot of things besides um, the actual politics of Elizabeth's reign. That book was very useful. Um, it was Elizabethan, like as you said, which there tends to be like in in research books. There tends to they tend to gloss over the fact that there was a Counter Reformation. So a lot of the things I was looking for after Henry VIII's reign didn't really fit. But other, it was a complete treasure trove. Just you know, the way he wrote it, it was like walking through 16th century England. Just really helpful. The clothing and the food, even entertainments, music, and all that stuff. Very helpful. I grew up in England when I was really young, and one of the things I remember is that the past is much more alive there than it is here. Um, I was a child. I lived near Abingdon, um, and the abbey there had been destroyed in the dissolution of the monasteries, and it was still there. It had been built in 11-something, and it was 700 years old at the time that I was there. And, and it's still, you know, it was clearly decrepit, but there was a, a, an observable shape, and you mm-hmm. could walk around it. And um, behind my elementary school, there was a Roman road, um, and, you know, you would go down in these little streets and uh, there's still lots of places there, even in London, uh, mm-hmm. which has been so over um, renovated and in the past 
50 years especially. Um, and of course, there was a great deal of destruction during mm -hmm. World War II. But even so, there are places in London that you can go and you're back in the 10th century. I'm getting goosebumps. About <laughs> so you went to Britain I last did. year. Um, Never should have come home. <laughs> so tell us, what was it what you expected? What did you find that really surprised you or really helped you figure out how to, to write your book? Well, I should first say that I was... Believe it or not, after pretty much an entire life of wanting to visit this place, I was a little disappointed. Mm -hmm. um, riding the train from Heathrow to our hotel, I went to college in the city, so I took SEPTA every morning. It looked the same. And I thought, okay, I could have done this at home. But then when you're out walking around, we literally walked into Westminster Abbey. I wasn't sure it was there. I knew it was nearby. I was still trying to get my bearings walking down the street and I look up and there it is right in front of me. I think that that was the most amazing part was how it was so modern, but then you just turn your head and there's something from, you know, the 10 hundreds right on the other corner. And they're so welcoming. Like they, they seem to really enjoy that people were interested in their history. Um, like I said, Westminster Abbey, we weren't allowed to take pictures inside, but I took a lot of the outside and that came in handy when I was tr writing the funeral scene because Mary's funeral takes place inside Westminster Abbey. So I had all of that fresh in my head. We went to uh, Hever Castle, which is where Anne Boleyn grew up. Um, Anne Boleyn does not make an appearance in my book, but it was nice to be able to walk around there and get a feel for what the manor house of the time felt like so that when I would describe them walking from room to room, I could do it accurately. I realized I needed to take out all my hallways that I had them walking down previously. Um, and it's just, I don't know. I never should have left. I, I haven't there. ever been to Hever. Can you see the kitchens and so on as, as they used to be? Not as they used to be. No. Mm -hmm. Um, William Waldorf Astor did a lot of renovations to it. A lot of the old rooms have been broken up into smaller rooms. Um, there were houses outside that he built, and he moved in closer to the main house. So you can't, you don't really get a feel for exactly what it felt like. Um, but I mean, it, it's it's close enough, and they have all kinds of diagrams inside the rooms telling you this happened here, and you know this this is the bed that Henry VIII slept in. This was Anne Boleyn's bedroom, and they have a headboard that actually dates from the 1600s instead of the 1500s. But that's unfortunate. But it's just it's it's nice to be able to get in there. Just it's one of these great big box beds with the curtains. It's not it? even oh Henry's bed. Yes, mm -hmm. um, Anne Boleyn. It it only has a headboard in her bedroom. Um, but then there's the gallery where her father had put in so they could exercise, and. And everything is done in the Tudor style, you know, the, the timber, and the waddle and daub and all of that. So it's very recognizable as a Tudor era house. Did you go to the tower? Yes. And what did you think of that? I loved the tower. We had the greatest beef eater guide of all time. Seems Barney. Um, that was surreal. Um, you know, the bloody tower where the princes in the tower were found. That was, that was crazy. And... Just Trader's Gate, especially, was one of my favorite features because that is where Anne Boleyn and Elizabeth both came to the tower when they were arrested. And so many other people, we saw the room where Walter Raleigh was locked up. 
when he was when King James imprisoned him. And all kinds of you know, old artillery and weapons and armor, and all kinds of things. So, and you went to Stratford as well. Yes, no self-respecting writer would skip that. <laughs> and when did you make a Stratford? That was my favorite part. Um, it's amazing how they they've built it up a little bit. You know, there's modern stores and everything, but at the same time, you get the feeling that you're in this you know tiny little 16th century village. Of course, we walked through Shakespeare's house and we saw, you know, his father was a glove maker. So his father's station and all kinds of gloves were laid out. We got to see that and we got to see pottery and shoes and clothes and little tiny windows and the doors. I can't imagine anyone being able to fit through those doors without having to duck. But people were shorter. Yeah, they were. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Whenever I I. Heroes are always, I had, I used to have them at six feet and then I realized I had to take out the, the measurements mm-hmm. partly because people didn't use measurements in the same way then, but partly because they were all too big right. and they would have to be, even if they were tall by standards at the time, they would not be tall right. by uh, our standards. Yeah, they were tiny. So I know this because I published with the same press, but um, we, I should explain uh, that we are part of what is a new movement in publishing, or at least we hope it's going to be a new movement and not (laughs) just a blip on the radar screen. (laughs) Um, Tell us a little bit about Five Directions Press. Okay, well, Five Directions Press is um, the author's cooperative we put together in 2012 after you finished your book. Um, We decided that, you know, traditional publishing might be not our end game. Um, but that self-publishing has, you know, the reputation is that everything's inferior, you know, and we set out to prove that that's not true. And there is, in fact, wonderful self-published stuff. And the problem is that it's hard to find right. because there aren't enough. I'm sure in, in time there will be uh, magazines and or webzines. And so, in fact, they're already emerging. There's Book Muse in London and uh, various other uh, sort of indie groups. Mm-hmm. I don't think any of them have really picked up, although Big Moose is, is starting to get a lot of play. Yeah. Um, but the thing is that we are a somewhat... We, we got lucky. We did. Part. We got really lucky. Um, we got lucky because I spent a lot of time editing and typesetting, so I have all of the professional software on my computer and which is the hard part of producing it. You really cannot put together a professional print book with word unless you're very, very skilled. And, um, and you are a graphic designer. I like to think so. And uh, so you do our cover design Mm -hmm. and uh, we have other members of a business manager, a business person and uh, a woman who's very good at um, detecting quality and, Mm -hmm. and making sure that the books keep, uh, to a certain standard. So our hope is that by banding together and promoting ourselves as a group rather than one-on-one, we can start to convince people that if you know where you're looking, you can find it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So tell me a little bit about yourself as a writer. How do you start a book? Usually I start with an image, at least... Uh, Sunrise by Sin started that way. The image never actually made it into the book, but that's a good thing. Uh, it was a 
<laughs> the terrible scene never should have been in there. Um, but yeah, I start with an image. I, I just, I think about it and think about it until it starts to you know, not leave me alone. When I can't get it out of my head is when I know I need to start giving it some serious attention. Um, and then I'll start to think about the characters and why are they doing what they're doing in the scene that I see in my head? What brought them there? What kind of people are they? You know, what happens after the scene? And eventually it just, it kind of starts to flesh itself out. Um, I have a tendency to start writing too early before I know exactly what's going to happen. But I always have the end game in my head. I always know where my characters and my story are going to go. I just usually start writing before I know how they're supposed to get there. So what are you working on now? Uh, the moment I'm simultaneously thinking about the sequel to this, uh, but as of right now, I only have that one scene. And actually at this point, I don't even have an end point. So but that that's on the back burner. I'm, I'm open to ideas and, you know, keeping my ears open for anything that might spark an idea. But I'm actually writing a contemporary holiday romance, my very first contemporary romance. I don't know. I'm five and a half chapters in, so we'll see what happens. And one last question. Um, your title, Sunrise by Sin, the yes. sequel is going to be Sun by Virtue Fall. Yep. So for those who don't know, where does that line come from? It comes from Measure for Measure by Shakespeare. So thank you so much for talking with us thank today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. <laughs> Thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm C.P. Leslie, and today I've been talking with Courtney J. Hall, author of Sunrise by Sin. You can find out more about her at www.courtneyjhall.com. Like us on Facebook, search for New Books in Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at New Books Histvic. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can also find out more about me and my books at http colon slash slash blog.cplesley.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about new books in historical fiction.